Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. This is a team sport and I'm a loner. So if I am telling you this, you've got to listen Teamwork and developing the team is number one. And a close number two is getting on a plane and going out and meeting the next team. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm here with Doug Harmon. Doug is joining us from Oakland, California. He's the founder of Liberta Homes, which is a value-add multifamily syndication company currently operating 152 units. Doug, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, and let me know if I run on here. I have a lot going on in the background, but basically I started off in aviation as a mechanic and worked my way up to management and got into project management and found out that translated pretty well into real estate. And I always had hobbies as rebuilding houses and was very mechanical as a kid and growing up. So got into it around 2000 and then uh, moved on from there to bigger and bigger projects. Around 2013, we were introduced to David Lindell in a real estate meetup here in California in the East Bay. San Francisco, Oakland, that area there. And David Lindahl had someone come over and talk about multifamily. 
We didn't really see much future in it in California. That market was pretty well picked over, but we did travel very easily. We worked for the airlines and really thought that that'd be a good idea to at least try it. So we went from there and bought some smaller duplexes, triplexes up near my hometown where I grew up in upstate New York, near my family, and struggled mightily the first year or so with several different management companies, and then finally got it right and made money with it and are actually selling them right now. And it was a great investment. We decided along the way that it would be a good idea to start building houses to build up a little bit of capital to help with the multifamily. That was our plan. So I got my contractor's license here in California and we started building houses, high-end houses. We made every and most investors mistake. We fell in love with the first one and moved into it. We still live in it today. But we did have a plan there. We built a lot of equity into this house, and that is still working for our real estate future now. And then also we built two others at the same time, which just was continuous seven days a week, 12 hours a day of work Oh man! to get these places done. They're very nice, high-end, four stories, elevators, big views, all that kind of stuff. But in hindsight, we really should have went for the multifamily first and then worked on single family residential after that. But here we are. That takes us to today. We sold the last big house in 2019. We did use capital from that and our equity here to move into more multifamily. And that's where we're at now. I haven't covered our current deals, if you'd like to do that now. You know, I'd like to jump into some questions that sure. came up for me while you were talking about your background. Mm-hmm. A couple of things here. The first is, where were you living when you started investing in residential multifamily in upstate New York? We weren't actually living there. I grew up there. My family's from there. We just found some really good deals at the time in a pretty iffy market in Rochester, New York. There are definitely some deals there, but there's also some very rough neighborhoods and other issues there. So you got to know the market, I feel. But that's kind of how we jumped in. Tell us more about your property management issues. You said you bounced through a few of the wrong PMs before finding the right one. Before you get into what made the right one the right one, can you tell us what it was about the quote unquote wrong property managers that led you to work with them in the first place and then where things went wrong? Yeah, I think we did some of our due diligence correctly in finding them. We did ask people that we knew and people that were meeting in some of these groups, Dave Lindahl, what were good property management companies there, who they used. I think we did everything right there. We did ask all the questions. I just think that we weren't really paying attention to how many properties these people were trying to manage and that there are different types of owners everywhere. We are playing it by the book. We're using the checklist. And if some of those items weren't being checkmarked, and those were big items, was the maintenance getting done correctly? What were our collections? Were you hiring the right tenants? And literally, like I said, we were playing it by the book. I was flying down there every couple of weeks at first and seeing it firsthand. And I don't think some of the bigger operators that were there in town necessarily were doing that. And as they grew, I think that's one of the big things I saw with management companies as they grow, they really seem to struggle and everybody does, right? To struggle to uh, increase their presence in the market. And they were not paying attention to details and putting it off on staff and stuff that they thought could handle it. But again, it was all the fundamentals. The maintenance wasn't done right. We're being charged too much. The collections were great at first, but then they weren't 
tenants try to pay the rent sometimes. Doug, please correct me where I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I do, as a podcast host, like to make assumptions on behalf of our audience, and I'm more than happy to be corrected. So please do let me know if I'm off base here, but it sounds like the issues with the property managers that you hired that didn't work out for you, they were issues of property managers, thinking of them like business owners who were scaling faster than their infrastructure and their systems would allow, and that it's quite possible when you hired them, that they had the infrastructure to handle their current management portfolio, but they continued to add properties without adding the systems and the infrastructure they needed to continue to maintain, manage those properties. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely correct. And I think they were probably already scaling up when we got into that. The people that we asked for referrals from had worked with them a long time and hadn't really seen the scale up problems that we saw as new owners. Gotcha. So what made the right fit the right fit? Trial and error. And finally, we got another referral and they're like, oh, this is the guy that turned around my properties. This is the guy that comes in and saves the day. And that is through making local contacts and local contacts and local contacts until you find something that works. And we were paying very close attention to the maintenance, the budget and the collections and how happy the tenants were. And all of that stuff just disappeared as a problem overnight. That's awesome. And how long have you been with this manager? We're still using them today. So that was almost eight years. Gotcha. So, well, hopefully if this is a person who's an excellent operator in their space, they've continued to scale their company through opportunities to work with more people like you, Doug. And it sounds like when that has happened, they've been able to scale their business along with it. I think so. I think that's key for all of us, every single one of us, right? To be able to scale. Absolutely. Doug, transitioning to... Your development of, it sounds like luxury, single family homes. I think you said four floor elevators. Where are they? They're in the Berkeley, Oakland Hills area. The nicer areas in the East Bay. They're not San Francisco markets, but they're as good as uh, you can get on the other side of the bridge. Okay, gotcha. And that seems like a pretty hefty transition from residential multifamily in upstate New York to building four-story homes in the Bay Area of California. Were there any investments in between or was it straight coast to coast? No, this was pretty much a coast to coast and we did do some renovations and some other things, but not nearly enough to be what I would call an experienced builder. But I think my advantage was that, yes, we were in over our heads. But I think our advantage was that I did work on large projects as a W-2 job for a long time. I was used to dealing with complex tasks, and I did learn lessons, luckily, early on, that if I bring the right people along, I'll have much more success. So I hired the expensive engineer that the city liked to deal with. I spent a lot of time at the city making sure they knew I was serious. And again, I think all of our success, even to this day, Uh, Is about having the right people around you and then just being there, flying there, going there, being in their office. Don't try and do things over emails, at least for the initial projects and everything else. The face-to-face time was invaluable and hiring the right people to work with us made us succeed. It was still very, very, very hard and not something I'm probably going to do again on any major level. You did say it was seven, 12-hour days a week. What was the main contributor to how much of your time was taken up building these homes? 
I think we said it before, scalability and my just trying to do everything myself. You have to scale up and you have to bring people in, even if they're subcontractors, whatever else, and set them loose on the project and then correct instead of trying to take on so many things yourself. I was literally building some furniture pieces myself and other things, doing some extra lighting and stuff. You can't do that on this kind of scale. You know, it's so funny. One of the reasons I'm an apartment owner operator in Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. Ohio, and I've done several burr deals. The largest proper burr with a cash out refi was a 24 unit. And one of the reasons I've been able to scale as I have as an owner operator is because there's a lot that I suck at that I just can't even attempt to do myself. I was chatting with one of my contractors. I showed up on site to see progress on a kitchen in an apartment that we're gut remodeling. And I was on the phone and there was a pile of like boxes and old tile walls from the former shower surround. And so while I was on the phone, I started picking it up and just carrying it to the dumpster because I was on the phone as well, make myself useful. And my guy came out and he said, no, don't worry. This is the only useful thing I can do on site today. <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> skill other than putting this stuff in the trash. But that means that I had to get good quickly at hiring other people to do that stuff. Right before this interview, I had a phone call with a bookkeeping CPA consultant for my property management company, and I was trying to brief him on an issue that my in-house bookkeeper is having, and he immediately wanted to explain the solution to the problem with me on the phone, and I had to say, Nick, whatever you're about to say isn't going to mean anything to me anyways. Please just connect with the people who know how to do this stuff. So I totally get where you're coming from. I've benefited greatly from finding ways to get organized enough and systematized enough to offload a lot of those day-to-day responsibilities and things like renovation. It sounds like that's something that you're working on as you move into multifamily as well, isn't it? It absolutely is. Our last two deals were me flying out to all these markets, meeting people face-to-face and all that, but it was just me. And then all of a sudden we had a deal and we didn't really have any friends that we knew. We really trusted to move into a deal with us and all these relationships, all this delegation would have been so much easier if we'd done that in advance. We've been super lucky in developing a decent team now, but it was so last minute that it could have really blown up in our Tell us more about that. So I got into our first deal. Again, it was all me going to Texas and all these other markets. I was all over the country, North Carolina, everywhere, flying to them and making offers and doing what we needed to do. It was a lot of fun and very scary, but we were not developing the team. So here we got this deal all of a sudden, a nice 56 units in Texas, great little property. And we had no partner to move forward with that we developed a relationship with to help us sign this loan did require a co-signer. So here we go. We started calling friends and everybody else and got hooked up and we had some trouble and the whole thing just fell apart. Literally, we had hard money and everything else and it just blew up in our face. So we were just joining the MIH mastermind at the time and made a lot of connections there and saved the deal. Had to extend it, save the deal, literally at the last minute. We closed on the last available day before our money walked out. And I don't know if you want me to mention names and stuff for some of the people that helped us out, but it was a really great experience at the end of a very bad experience. Doug, we have a very sophisticated audience for the Best Ever podcast. 
The vast majority of our listeners are actively involved in apartment investing, actually. So give us an idea of when you were putting this deal together. That'll mean something to our audience. Do you mean more about the time frame or the details around putting it together? I mean, when is it that you were making these flights? Are oh. we talking 2020 or 2022? Oh, great question. Yeah. So 2019 to 2020, gotcha. pandemic started. We sold our last house and decided it's time to shut down construction and really get serious about my family. So I was flying around all over the country from basically January 2020 all the way through 2022. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Everyone is looking for a recession-resilient investment. How can you try to prevent from losing money by picking the wrong fund and sponsor? Right now, you can get Reliant Real Estate Management's free guide, 10 Things to Consider in a Real Estate Investment Fund, by visiting besteverreliant.com. Answer questions like, is the organization's focus on you? And does the fund keep employees? Reliant Real Estate Management is ranked one of the top 20 largest self-storage operators in the country with one billion dollars in self-storage assets. After completing three funds and selling 38 properties with zero dollars of investor principal loss, they have an average project level IRR of 33% in just over 3.5 years. Visit besteverreliant.com right now to receive the 10 things to consider in a real estate investment fund and get access to their latest investment opportunities. That's besteverreliant.com, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R-R-E-L-I-A-N-T.com. When did you close on your first apartment deal? December 2021, so less than a year ago. Yeah, that was a good time to get financing, though. We're, yeah. we're recording in September of 2022, and there's a lot I wish I could go back and do in December of 21, for sure. Tell us more about that deal. I introduced you as a value-add multifamily syndicator, and that is one thing we haven't gotten into yet in this conversation. Right. And do you want specifics for property names and that kind of things, or do you want more generalities? The specifics are at your comfort level, Doug. Mm -hmm. I will say you can't make any offerings of investment opportunities through the podcast. So it all needs to be about things that have already funded and closed. Okay. That said, detail away at your discretion. So we flew down to the I-35 corridor, which I like very much in between Dallas and Austin. And spent a lot of time driving up and down there. And Waco was always very strong. So we looked at a property there. It was not for us. From a contractor's side, it had lots of issues. So just as we were leaving, there was a little 56 unit that kind of popped up as a student deal. We didn't know anything about student properties at the time. And I went to look at it and thought the place was just really cool. 12-foot ceiling, cement floors, very industrial loft style, big windows. And couldn't understand why it was empty basically. Not empty, 70% occupied and a lot of delinquency and everything else. But it was a great location, very close to Baylor, right close to downtown in Waco. And Waco was booming, still is. So I'm like, well, this is that deal, you know, it's kind of off everybody's radar. It's listed as student. So that takes us off uh, radar, but it's great for market and student renters. I think we have a great number of options here. So we dug into it and all the properties around it were 98% full. So we're like, okay, yeah, this is it. This is the one. I'd love it to be bigger, but uh, we're jumping in with both feet. And uh, from there, we just started 
again, hitting the checklist, hitting the lenders and making all those relationships that we didn't already have in place. So finally got it closed after a lot of difficulty with the bank. A great local lender though, Amplify Credit Union, finally just appeared on the scene and uh, great rates, great terms, and they understood the market. I hear so often that the local banks often are so great at stepping in there because they understood the market. And that makes sense. Relationship sense. So you buy student housing in December of 21 near Baylor. First of all, I personally want to salivate over the debt that you got in December of 21 because the cost of debt is crushing my deals right now. I just told an off-market seller for a 10-unit in an amazing neighborhood that I couldn't do it because the debt would be too expensive. What did you get? We got four and a quarter percent with really great terms. It is a bridge, but it's a long bridge, five years, and then 10 years we can extend it to, and it's fixed. So... It was everything we were looking for. And like I said, we were going back and forth, our experience level and our co-signers and all these issues with other lenders and everything just came together with this one lender and local lenders, they get it done every time. And uh, then we filled it up. We got those set up. They closed. They were very conservative and they were also at the same time performers. In other words, they did everything they said they were going to do. Who is this? This is Amplify Credit Union out of Austin. Gotcha, the lender, yes. The lender, right. And that is actually the old IBM Credit Union out of Austin. So they were looking to get into the market. They were more aggressive than everybody else. And they were just total dudes. They'd pick up the phone when I had a question. Hey, what do we do? That helps for sure. That really sucked everything out. Tell us more about your business plan. You said it could remain student. It could go market. I know student housing, you need a different kind of insurance and lenders are going to look at it a little differently. Tell us what your business plan was after you acquired it. So before we even acquired it, we developed a business plan that said, hey, we can't limit ourselves to a student market here. We don't know enough about it. We don't feel like dealing with these headaches. So we said, we are going to market this to the market. We are going to bring in the higher income, middle income renters here due to our location and the asset itself, we think we can do that. If we have students, that's great, but we're not going to allow sponsored students. In other words, sponsored by their parents and everything. That way we have the option of bringing in students who are more professional, who qualify on their own, bringing in construction workers and nurses, medical workers and all that, and being able to qualify for a loan to refinance this thing with as little trouble as possible. And the insurance, as you said, was easier that way too. And it worked. We filled it up in three months and have been basically 100% occupied ever since. That's awesome. A couple of quick questions there before we transition to the last Mm -hmm. segment of the podcast. A couple of things come to mind. First, you say you got it filled up in three months. How many vacancies was that? Let's see, that was probably about 20 vacancies when we started. And we had the transitions and do the student cycle that was coming up in the summertime. So we're very concerned about that. There were students there before, so we made it through the student lease up this summer and kept it 100% full the whole time. Doug, you may have anticipated my next question. I don't personally have a lot of experience in student housing, but a lot of my friends do. And I know that leasing cycle is fairly rigid here in Cincinnati for UC and Xavier 
those students are looking in the fall for the leases that will begin the following August. So in October, November, signing leases that begin in August of the next year. Also, I would imagine if this was primarily student housing, that's a lot of leases coming up at the same time. Mm -hmm. This is a very operational question, but you guys have gone through a summer now since you Mm -hmm. bought it. What things are you and your management company doing to smooth out that transition of so many tenants who are on leases that terminate at the same time? That's a great question. We saw it coming. There's lots of peers anybody else has told us, hey, this is coming. You better be ready. So we did a lot of pre-leasing. Part of our team, luckily, was very good at the virtual marketplace, the Google market, the Facebook market, and everything else. We were on all the websites too, and apartments.com generated a lot of traffic. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But we really pushed the Facebook, and we had some strange units too, 1,600 square foot, four bedroom units that were kind of scary. We're like, ah, no one's going to want that. We'll just get a house. But time after time after time, we get our experts on the Facebook side of this and getting it out there, and it would come off the market. We'd get pre-leased. And after four or five times, I'm like, this is no coincidence. This really, really works. So we were able to really intensely pre-market and get all those leases pre-signed before we even hit that summertime bubble. And then we really started working on staggering our leases. Hey, I will do this one for six months, this one for 12 months, this one for nine months to get us off that bubble moving forward. But kind of jumping ahead, that really was key because we just stumbled across, a broker called us out of nowhere for a deal, 96 stores, next door to our current property. And we jumped all over it. That we closed on here in August. And we just went through a turn. 30 of those units turned and we were ready for it. We budgeted for it. Our management company knew about it. And we turned it successfully within that two week, two to three week time frame to get those students because that's heavier students than our previous property. That's good information. Doug, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Yeah, I'm ready. Awesome. What is the best ever book you recently read? I recently read Think and Grow Rich, which I'm sure many of your interviewees have talked about before by Napoleon Hill. It's a really old book. And the thing I liked about it so much is we read a lot of this kind of material, right? Most of us do. And to see some of that same stuff in 1937, those key fundamentals about vision and forward thinking and team development and all of that in 1937 and keep reading some of these key things year after year after year right up to 2022 is really important to me. I think that if you can tie in history and see these things over and over again, it must be true. And we practice that every day. I'm big into visualization and whether or not I'm just driving down the road or have it stuck to my wall somewhere. I think that's so key to see yourself already there. What is your best ever way to give back? My best ever way to give back is I was big into aviation. So I definitely, as I reach into retirement here, want to start teaching and educating along those lines. And then also, I definitely really enjoy the big capital uh, work, helping with the city and stuff like that for charity projects such as construction and renovation of local parks and that kind of stuff. I haven't done as much of the latter yet, but those are my big, exciting ideas to give back. Doug, this being a commercial real estate investing podcast, I want to focus this next question 
on your most recent apartment investing deal. What is the biggest mistake that you've made thus far and the best ever lesson you've learned as a result? Just in this last deal or throughout my real estate multifamily career? Let's focus on commercial apartments, so five mm -hmm. plus units. Okay, biggest mistake I ever made, I think, was a condo conversion back in Houston. And I think my biggest mistake was there that when we were going to title and saw 130 individual title closings that needed to happen here, we should have reached out and had a few more experts around us. And number two, knowing when to quit. When the title company calls you up and says, I don't see how this works and we're spending a lot of money ourselves on this, it's time to at least put the deal on pause until you have those answers versus my mentality. We are closing no matter what. And that is my mentality. When we get into contract, we are closing, period. But you need to be realistic. And when a deal reaches some point where everybody is telling you this isn't going to work, or at least we have problems here, you need to listen. We were lucky. We knew this was coming, so we didn't lose a lot of money other than all of our due diligence and legal fees and that kind of thing. But we didn't lose any hard deposits or anything. So we lost money on that. And that was about really not being so desperate to do a deal that you will just do it. Doug, that being said, what is your best ever advice? My best ever advice, there was a lot of things I'm still not successful at, but the most important thing is developing a team. You have to do that in advance. You have to go with known operators. You have to go with referrals. Referrals are everything. Throughout my career, that's been everything. You can't go to Craigslist or anything and hope to find something you're going to deal with. You have to deal with people that you trust, and then you have to deal with the people that they trust. Teamwork, this is a team sport, and I'm a loner. So if I am telling you this, you've got to listen. Teamwork and developing the team is number one, and a close number two is getting on a plane and going out and meeting that team for brokers, for lenders, for partners, for boots on the ground. and everything. I know it's all fundamentals. Everybody says that, but it's true. Awesome. Last question. Where can people get in touch with you? My best uh, option is email and I can uh, attach that here, of course, but I am a phone call kind of guy. If we got stuff going on, ring the phone, I pick it up. It's just the way I work. Send an email first. And like I said, I can post the email with you for people. Your email will be in the show notes. Doug, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who you know we can add value to through this conversation about surrounding yourself with the right people in real estate investing. Thank you and have your best ever day. Thank you so much.